This is Criterion Cast Chronicles, Episode 7. Tonight we'll be discussing the August 2016 Criterion Collection lineup. Joining me to do that, I have David Blakesley. Hey, David. Hello. And I have Scott and I. Hey, Scott. Howdy. So tonight uh, we have the five releases from Criterion for August. We would have had six if McCabe and Mrs. Miller had been released in August as intended, but uh, having that one pushed to uh, October made this month a little bit easier uh, to watch everything, or at least to watch most of everything. I didn't, I don't, I didn't get a chance to watch everything, but I did watch more than I normally have uh, for these episodes. And I think also having McCabe and Mrs. Miller taken away from the batch was interesting in that it. I feel like that one was kind of the, like, the the biggest maybe title apart from Chimes at Midnight that was had maybe the, like the broadest appeal or maybe the most um i don't know like a wider audience was more was interested in picking that one up and the titles that remained are all kind of small uh not very flashy as far as releases go but you know they're all very very good very special releases i found yeah i don't feel any shortage i think i even said something you know about how taking mccabe out made this feel like a lighter month but that was actually before I sat down and, and watched, or in some cases rewatched these films. And yeah, there's there's a lot to digest in this uh, in this August lineup. So um, I'm pretty satisfied with it as it is. Yeah, me too. And in terms of the one I'll be presenting, I think we got a pretty major title in there myself. <laughs> yeah. But uh... I know it is hard. It it is weird to say that you know like oh this is kind of a lighter month and there's not really anything special about any of these titles. You know when we have this t- this film that has been almost impossible to see in a decent state for you know almost the entirety of its existence. So first up, we'll be discussing the the first release of August which was Ingrid Bergman in her own words. Back in 2015 at the Cannes Film Festival, they celebrated Ingrid Bergman with a poster and uh, as well as the this documentary from Stig Bjorgman, who, uh, who, who went and made uh, a documentary in, um, in Sweden. Uh, this one was kind of a surprise in a way for uh to get its own criterion collection release just in that you know they typically don't give a documentary like this its own spine number i mean typically something like this might show up on as a supplement for another release or you know it might show up as like you know a supplement on the the box set that they did you know with the the three films by roberto rossellini starring ingrid bergman like that that feels like it would fit something like there and so um but, you know, in watching it, and so I guess for anyone out there who hasn't seen it yet, this just essentially goes through her life and starts off when she was a child, you know, losing her parents um, at a young age and, you know, going into into acting and, um, you know, getting married and having kids and starting uh, coming to the U.S. to start uh, starring in, you know, bigger films than what she was starring in um, back in Sweden and then, but along the way, we're we're reading, we're hearing quotes and passages from her journals, like her diaries, and seeing photographs and video, little you know video footage uh, that she shot uh, on family vacations or just as they were traveling through Europe. And uh, you know, along the way, we're hearing um, her her diaries being read to us by um, uh, Alicia Vikander 
who is, you know, a, a pretty uh, new star out there. I mean, she's been in films like um, The Man from Uncle and The Danish Girl and Ex Machina. Um, and she's, you know, it seems like she's going to be um, like an up and coming star in one of the documentaries or one of the interviews. I think Stig Bjorkman talks about how she, you know, when he was in talking about her, you know, the the, the woman who's reading, who's acting as Ingrid Bergman's vo- uh, voice, she he, he kind of relates her to Ingrid and, you know, talks about how the similarities in their um, kind of up and coming, you know, or their, 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 you know, these, these early careers of them. And, um, anyway, I found her voice to be just kind of perfect for, uh, hearing what Ingrid Bergman or, you know, as a, as a kind of like a, uh, you know, proxy for her. Yeah. We don't normally hear Alicia Vikander speaking in Swedish, you know, so cause, cause she's in, you know, these kind of mainstream Hollywood movies, at least the ones that she's most well known for. But uh, yeah, he kind of talks about she's retracing Ingrid's steps, and I think that was really remarkable for me just to get a a sense of this woman's journey. I mean, I've I'd, I've admired her as an actor for a long time. I think on some podcast somewhere in the past and this network, I think I said she is my favorite female actor of them all, and this really just solidified that sense that that. Uh, that fascination much more beyond just her beauty but the the person behind it all yeah you really get a chance to see that she is an artist i mean you know just if you were to not see any of her performances in this documentary if you were just to see her you know uh her photographs or her um you know home movies and whatnot um you really get a sense that she like had this create this entire side of her uh, like in creative side of her that um, most people ha- probably have no idea that she did any of this. Yeah, I think Bjorkman had noted that um, he had seen pictures of her with cameras at different points in her life, uh, whether they were publicity photos or just kind of candid behind the scenes. And and uh, I think it was, uh, was it uh, Isabella Rossellini met with him at con a few years ago and um kind of proposed the idea about him making a film uh, about her mother uh, you know isabella uh, and uh, the daughter of one of three children that ingrid bergman had with roberto rossellini and so they they kind of recreate that whole you know that whole saga that ingrid bergman went through and and one of the funny notes i noted that was just that you know like the 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 bit as they tracked her career about Casablanca was almost like three or four sentences and then they just moved on it's like wow you know in in an ordinary documentary you'd think that would be a nice 15 minute block right there but uh, that's such an iconic role but they almost kind of gloss right through her the the working side of her Hollywood years I mean they they do talk about her her separation from her family from her her first daughter when uh her first husband and daughter were still over in Sweden and Ingrid's, you know, kind of the, the shining star, but, uh, maybe envisioning a return home someday, but she, she had this wanderlust and she had this, this, uh, you know, almost a sense of calling and it kind of comes out that she just needed to act. And of course that, that created some, some, some pain on the personal side and certainly massive scandal, uh, as the culture just was not ready to deal with a woman who just charted her own course, 
this independently without succumbing to you know public acts of shame and humiliation i mean she held her head up the whole time even as she did things that were considered almost unthinkable about you know leaving a husband leaving a child and pursuing her her vision and you know not not to minimize you know the heartbreak that must have happened along the way but she really was quite a remarkable person and you have to just allow that as you said Ryan she she's an artist uh, first and foremost she's not just a celebrity or a, a movie star she's she's uh, she's got something much deeper and more profound going on uh, even though it wasn't maybe art on the same scale as you know the auteur directors and and uh, people who really put themselves out there as these larger than life creative personalities I mean, she, she really was in her own way and I, I think that coming to grips with with the, the creative power and and just the many interesting aspects of her personal journey including the tragedies that she experienced as a young child really uh, does make this a, a real standalone uh, worthwhile release it's, this is not just a glorified collection of supplements yeah absolutely uh, I wish now having seen this release and having watched the the supplements I hope that they do this type of thing for more actors or I hope that more actors get this kind of uh, you know this this treatment this in-depth look behind the scenes at their at their life and their work and their art and their families and stuff just because it is you know I mean in some ways it felt like we're getting this um, this behind the scenes look of a of a performer that you know, we don't really have any other examples like this except for, you know, supplements spread across multiple discs of, of you know, directors or, or, or actors or producers. Um, yeah. Scott, have you, so I know you were a big fan of the, the box set, the Rossellini Bergman box set. Um, did you have a chance to see this documentary either when it was, you know, in theaters or on home video? No, unfortunately not. And I was kind of one of those when this title was announced to be like, why, why does this get a spine number anyway? You know, you think of like Live in Ingmar or Bergman's Island or these other kind of feature length documentaries that uh, were uh, supplements on larger releases and I think kind of fit in well there. But then kind of seeing everybody talk about it and certainly listening to you guys talk about it and seeing some of the screen caps of her home movies and stuff, you know, like those home movies were some of my favorite supplements on that uh Rosalind Bergman box set and so I, I really want to check this movie out now um at the very least rent it on Amazon or iTunes but hopefully to pick up the release itself to get uh the extras in there as well I wish they'd expanded I know they have like a segment of one of her early features I wish they kind of included all that segments are always a little frustrating but um otherwise it looks like a really cool release well I think there, there's one where it's her first role and she really is almost just a walk-on extra so there's really oh, okay. not much more gotcha. to see than that and then the other one is is a series of outtakes so you see you get to see her doing the same sort of sequence over and over again so it, it is pretty intriguing it, it's it's satisfying yeah there's always that sense of well what else is there <laughs> could they just squeeze a little bit more on but uh yeah th that's the other thing the the supplements uh, really do amplify the impact of, of the main feature. So I, I'm pretty happy with this disc, and that's definitely one that... Uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of cool stuff. In fact, I, I almost want to say there's some interesting surprises when uh, when other uh, you know, actors get involved and, and when they really do retrace her steps uh, around the globe. Uh, it's uh, Yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting twists and turns that the story takes. Gotta check this out now. Made it a must-see. 
All right, well, let's move on to the next release of the month. Um, this one was another kind of special release that was teased at back in the uh, wacky New Year's drawing when we, ha we saw the little jar of honey. But uh, Tony Richardson's 1961 film, A Taste of Honey, is now available from Criterion, spine number 829, um, a title that uh, I had never seen before, and I just uh, ended up going through the disc last night just because this one, initially when we started planning for this episode, Aaron was going to uh, be the one to talk about this release, and when I saw that he wasn't going to be able to join us to, to talk about uh, any of these titles tonight, I, I quickly scrambled and made sure to get it and uh, watch the film and watch the supplements. And uh, this is probably one of my, I mean, I really enjoyed Ingrid Bergman, but this one was really special. And I'm so glad that I took the time to watch it and uh, get into some of the supplements and read about, you know, the, um, the history of the film, the, the play that this is based on, and as well as the, the whole, that whole uh, film movement uh of theirs the um what is it the new new cinema free cinema free cinema right so uh taste of honey is a adaptation of a play um and this one was uh you know let's see here so that we were basically we're following the story of joe a young uh teenager in in england who is kind of living a uh a you know, lower class, like very poor life with her mother and they're going from one flat to the next kind of, you know, we, we meet them as, as they're about to get kicked out of, uh, the apartment that they're staying in and they go along to their next one. Um, and along the way, Joe meets a, a cook from a ship who has, you know, uh, have is like on, on leave essentially from his ship. And, um, you know, they, there's a little bit of a romantic, uh, interlude there. Uh, eventually we find out that she becomes pregnant from this as, as they, you know, they've kind of fallen in love and, um, but then he goes off again. Uh, the mother meanwhile is, uh, you know, has her own romantic flings with, uh, you know, potential, uh, potentially other married men, but, uh, one of whom asks her to marry him. So she, the mother goes off, uh, and is, leaves the story for a little bit. Um, and Joe ends up meeting a, as, as she ends up getting a job at a shoe store and, um, meets this other man who is played by, um, a, an actor that I, I kind of immediately recognized as someone who I knew Murray Melvin, uh, plays Jeffrey in this store, in this adaptation. Uh, he also played Jeffrey in the stage version of the play. Um, but Murray Melvin, was one of the uh, actors in, Ken, in a number of Ken Russell films, including The Devils. Uh, but he's um, Father Mignon, the one of the, the big bad guys from The Devils. Um, but he has such a uh, a great performance, and he looks so young in this movie. I mean, everyone everyone looks so young in this movie. Uh, and you know, when you go to look at some of the 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 careers of these actors, um, it's amazing to see you know how many of them are still working or how many of them went on to do other, you know, famous things. Um, what I really enjoyed though, and I just tweeting a little bit about this last night was being able to see some of the, um, the documentary that, uh, that Richardson shot alongside of, uh, along with some other, 
kind of Criterion alums like uh, Carol Reich, I think, was involved with the the making of this documentary, Mama uh, Mama Don't Allow. Is that the name of the, the documentary that's on here? The jazz. Yes, yeah. that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's you know it's a it's a it's not a silent documentary, but there's no dialogue in that in that little uh it's about a 20 30 minute documentary um where they basically just shoot this jazz club and um you see them kind of cleaning up to prepare for it and then you see a number of folks you know come in and dance and um it's uh it's just really sweet and kind of uh refreshing (laughs) to to watch something like that it was amazing i think the the Charmaine and I were trying to figure out the the age of the folks in that documentary, and it seems like it would probably be my grandparents' generation. Like how old Charmaine and I are now it would have been about how old these folks were in that documentary. Yeah, like a, a lot of nineteen to twenty five year olds, except you know they're all wearing suits and ties. <laughs> the guys are so you know they they look older perhaps, but they they actually are just you know you're not used to seeing young people dressed up so formally for a night out but uh, yeah I, I really love that little bit too it's really kind of like i could say 20 minutes of just it's, it's it's like a little night on the town you know kind of compressed i think there's like four or five different songs you know uh, mama don't, don't allow i think is the last one uh but they're sort of semi-standards which are really just people dancing and cutting up and uh yeah just kind of like england before the beatles came along a few years later and just changed so many things but it's very lively very rambunctious and th- and this is you know you see it's set in england it's really up in manchester so it is a bit of a a northern feel to it the accents are a little bit rougher uh it's a very gritty milieu but really beautifully photographed too and and the character studies and the humor i mean there are there are quite a few laugh out loud moments uh in the, especially in the earlier portions of the film and then it gets pretty pretty uh pretty real and and pretty heartfelt and uh very powerful yeah i was i was i was also quite quite delighted i I figured i would like this i figured there'd be plenty of interesting stuff to enjoy uh the the scene and the this just the atmosphere of this time and place but uh you know it's very moving story and 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 very you know very ahead of its time in terms of its uh kind of take on cultural issues including you know uh, you know homosexuality uh, interracial uh, relationships single motherhood and just a young woman who's really outspoken and certainly quite naive in, in many ways but has a has a sense of of presence about herself that is is you know very very winsome and uh, I, I can see why this this play and and the the film itself made a pretty big splash at the time, and uh, I I really enjoyed the the um, the interview with Murray Melvin, you know, which was probably created you know earlier this year for especially for the film or for this release, and uh, he takes a little bit of uh, justifiable pride in his place as a as a trailblazer for you know open depiction of gay characters in cinema, and. Uh, you know, it's it's a pretty cool testimony of the story that he gets to tell. Uh, I didn't get a chance to check this out, but I, I wish the Criterion had highlighted the humor and liveliness that you guys are. Because sometimes these films that are kind of billed for their realism, I think uh, they can be a, a bit of a slog for the viewer. And I think the British films especially tend to take themselves very seriously. But hearing that it's this kind of lively and very funny uh, look at times at life there uh, makes me want to see it all the more. 
Yeah, I think especially if you've had your fill of the angry young man, there yeah. is this, this <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, this this is a this is a re- refreshing take on that because it's a it's a young woman who who has her anger, but it it kind of comes out uh, in in different ways. She's not sort of self consciously jutting her chin into the harsh winds of fate. You know, she's she's scrambling and feisty and and funny and. And uh, you know, artistic in her own way. Yeah, there's there's some pretty cool moments there. And the thing is that this script was written by a, like a woman who was 18 years old when she, she when she put this thing together. And there's a pretty nice interview clip with her as well, where <laughs> you can. I mean, she's a little bit older than 18 at this point. She's had some worldly success, but she's still pretty raw and still pretty candid in just how she tells it like it is from where she's sitting. So. Yeah, there's some cool stuff to enjoy here. The documentary about um, with Kate Dorney, I think, which is remaking British theater um, about Joan Littlewood and uh, the Taste of Honey. I think Joan Littlewood was she the director of the of the play, but not the playwright. Like Sheila Delaney, I think, was the playwright, and then um, the the other woman who was the kind of the one who wore like. Um, like the uh was it like a sailor hat or something and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she was just kind of like a tough lady who was kind of taking on the the british um like stage association or whoever it was that was like you know they they had to put the, their stamp of approval on the scripts and if you strayed from those what was what was submitted then you would have to go to court and she she fought to you know let them like impro- improvise uh on the stage and and really fought to like you know ch- change the way that uh you know british plays were being um were being done one of my favorite moments just to, you know a random aside from from the movie was there are these there's this group of kids that you that you see in the background of, of different sequences but you kind of they're they're in the movie like throughout the entire film and there's just so much, there's some random parts where it's like these kids, uh, you know, should they be in school right now? Or are they just out running around, you know, being wild kids? And sometimes they're like, you know, uh, lighting fires or, you know, playing on uh, broken pieces of wood, uh, you know, alongside this river or um, it was just. Yeah, they have a, they have a Guy Fox party at the end as well. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <That's> pretty awesome. <laughs> And it's like they're almost never recognized uh, by any of the other actors except for that last moment when when um, when Jeffrey kind of you know joins in with them as he's leaving uh, Joe. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a fun little little bit of the movie, I, and I'm curious if like how much of that was in the play uh, or you know what was added uh, to you know to change things along. No, there's there's some really nice cinematic touches. This is this is a it feels like a pretty accomplished film for something that was sort of coming up from the streets. I think you know Tony Richardson certainly you know had had some technical skill and yeah. You know, there's a nice interview with him as well, sort of at the time of these films were were being released, and he was you know kind of the toast of the town. And yeah, you know, he he speaks with some uh, some confidence, a little bit of swagger there. But I, I I can understand why he's he's feeling it. He's uh he's making some waves, and it's it is it's just a really fascinating snapshot. If you're just if you're just interested in the kind of the progression of of English culture, uh, this this feels like this was a 
very significant turning point in kind of loosening things up from the you know the more staid uh you know cinema of quality i guess to to kind of transfer over from the french thing and what the new wave was doing down in france i think england had its own shake up going on and, and this was a big piece of it do you i guess like how did this one fit in with uh your view of british cinema that you'd already passed through in in your um in your watching you know the films for your own blogging yeah well i think you know i it would have been nice i think to have had access to this um you know I, i've watched like this sporting life and of mm-hmm. course we covered the basil dearden set which covers some of the same territory in terms of its social consciousness but those those films were a little bit later than this one and so yeah where i where i kind of initially took the basil dearden films is like wow these are kind of breakthroughs and i guess they were in their own way but i think um a taste of honey uh kind of pre predates that i mean again the play came out in 58 this film was released in 61 and i you know i i i'm a big fan of the basil dearden films but i do feel like this one does deserve its criterion standalone release um yeah, although you know there's there's other films i would like to you know get a nice edition of loneliness of the long distance runner and and don't look back in anger. I mean, you see these, you know, stills of Richard Burton, uh, young Richard Burton. It's like, yeah, that would be pretty cool to get more of this of this era uh, in the collection. So, um, you know, I hope this one does well and and opens the door for for more of that stuff to uh, come out. But I like I say, this this is different. This is if you if you have seen those films or if you kind of think you know what you're in for with. Uh, you know the again the stereotypical angry young man there there's there, there's something unique going on here the one thing i have to say i'm disappointed is they they don't play that song a taste of honey you know i i mean every time i think of the movie i think of paul mccartney yeah. a taste of honey it's like and that that song never even appears the whole time it's like what is that <laughs> <laughs> well it was interesting cuz they they so there's a song in the movie that's called a taste of honey i think and then that uh, and then the Beatles would later go on to cover the song that was written, I think, like... Uh, there was a stage... I think the stage version had that song featured somehow. Uh-huh. I think it is connected somehow to this play or this story, but it didn't make it into the film, and so uh-huh. I was a little crestfallen there. So I kept waiting at the end. When's it going to come out? When's it going to come out? It's like... I didn't expect the Beatles version, of course, but right. I thought, well... I want to hear the original, but alas, it's not here. Not even any of the supplements. I thought, oh, come on, give, me, give us something, please. In the Wikipedia article, it also mentions that the the Beatles song, Your Mother Should Know, was uh, inspired by this film. Yes, yes. I thought the same. I didn't know that. I didn't make that connection. But, but when... Uh, when uh, Joe reveals to Jeffrey that she's pregnant, he says, your mother should know. And of yeah. course, that's exactly the first <laughs> thought that came to mind. <laughs> totally. Um, so yeah, this was a really great release. I, I uh, After I watching that Mama Don't Allow documentary, I went searching around on Amazon UK just to see if there were other films from that movement uh, collected. And sure enough, there's a free cinema 16 film collection collecting films from 1952 to 1963 it's a three dvd set that uh the bfi put out back in 2006 so it's kind of old but uh it's still out there and it features uh, you know a number of these films including mama don't allow but you know if you want to see more of this stuff i think i'm seriously i'm definitely considering importing this just to watch some more of this stuff 
Yeah, I'm intrigued. All right, well, let's move on now to the third release of the month, a Blu-ray upgrade of Woman in the Dunes, the Teshigahara film. This one was once a part of the box set that uh, that, that Criterion had put together, um, which is now out of print. Um, the, the three films, uh, let's see, Pitfall, Woman in the Dunes, and Face of Another, the three films by Te- Hiroshi Teshigahara. Um, that one, I think... It was one of those box sets that had kind of quietly gone out of print at some point back in 2014, maybe. And uh, or maybe it had said, like, you know, buy it on Amazon. And then at some point, the Criterion one finally went out of print. And then Criterion announced that they were going to be releasing the individual release of Woman in the Dunes. I think all along, they've still had the films up, I think, on Hulu. So that seems like they still have the rights to them. It's just uh, maybe they were waiting to get better masters of them in order to, you know, reissue them as these, you know, new high definition versions of them. And also the expensive reprinting that very nice textured embossed box set cover, mm-hmm. which has this big kind of fingerprint uh, and little 3D kind of, uh, you know, a nice texture to it, nice paper, little bonus book, you know, uh, maybe that would just be a little bit of a, a too expensive for them to, to reproduce or to put out a new batch of that, which is, which is a shame. I actually had chosen that set as one of my 2015 uh, Blu-ray upgrade wish lists. So I guess uh, Criterion met me one third of the way <laughs> and that's, that's fine because I guess if you have to, if you, if you have to settle for just picking out one film from the set, this is clearly the one. Uh, I think Woman in the Dunes is a pretty major film, actually. Uh, it was certainly a big splash at the time in 1965, I believe, is when it came out. Uh, 1964, okay, is when it was released in Japan, probably 65, 66 is when it kind of came over to the to the West and, and, and made its big impact. But even in the, even in the film itself, uh, Teshigahara's opening credits have the film, the titles in Japanese and in English, you know, uh, the translation as well as kind of a transliteration of the Japanese text. So he was clearly making this movie for an international market and, and really capitalizing on some of the the interest in kind of exotic, avant-garde, uh, Japanese uh, you know, high concept art films were 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 kind of generating all of that interest at this at this time. Uh, Woman in the Dunes also has definitely a very kind of erotic element to it, which I'm sure you know ginned up a, a significant amount of interest in its day. Uh, I think it holds up pretty well. It's it's an incredibly uh, beautiful film. I mean, Teshigahara's use of landscapes and natural elements, his framing, his compositions uh, of just the of these these dunes, literally, you know, are, are just really outstanding. And the the Blu-ray transfer is impeccable, and it's just a real visual feast. And then a great uh, uh, you know, soundtrack that kind of blends right right perfectly with the uh, with the visual elements by Toru Takamitsu is that Takamatsu um yeah it's just kind of this kind of really abstract kind of grading kind of music concrete style uh with again the those Asiatic elements that just are are very fascinating very striking and unusual the story itself is is probably in some ways maybe the the 
the the weak point in, at least in some in some uh, viewers minds uh because it's it's very arch it's very symbolic there's a uh uh a story of a man it, it kind of has this kind of um oh i don't know abstract surreal symbolic type of uh, thing going on here a man is out uh I guess he's a he's he's playing Pokemon Go. You might say he's out there look, <laughs> looking looking for bugs in in the sand in the desert, right? Collect, collecting his specimens there in his little jar. He and wants to, uh, he he wants to make yeah. it into a an encyclopedia. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. His 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 goal is to become the discoverer of a brand new species so that he will have his his fame uh, when uh, he gets a species named after him of some kind of, you know, beetle or sand spider or whatever it might be that nobody has ever quite caught or identified before. Uh, but in his zeal, he kind of goes off the path for a bit and misses his bus back home uh, after he's taken a few days off of his day job to go out in this little quest for, uh, you, know, uh, you know, scientific fame and glory. Uh, but along the way, he meets some some locals, uh, and they offer him a place to stay. And they kind of point to this little cabin that's down at the bottom of this sand pit. And he's like, "Well, I guess so. I guess I'll I'll hang out here for a little bit." But it turns into a bit of a trap because the house is kind of you know surrounded by these sand cliffs, and he finds you know to his you know, astonishment and eventually kind of horror that he just can't get out. And so, yeah, this is kind of where the metaphors and the symbolism start to kick in. And, and there's a little cottage industry of people trying to figure out what does it all mean, you know? And so, uh, I, I think the filmmaker, uh, who I, he, uh, he based this work and he actually worked quite closely with the novelist Kobo Abe, uh, who, who you know, wrote the source material and, and the, the, him and Teshigahara and, Takemitsu were kind of like this trio of, of uh, creative forces that, you know, also work together on Pitfall, and I think they work together on Face of Another as well, uh, which kind of gives this film kind of it, its trilogy, or this the, the, the old box at its trilogy feel. But Woman in the Dunes is the one that really, you know, uh, caught international attention. Uh, it stars the same actor uh, who was in Hiroshima Manamur, and the uh, the bodies caked in finely grained sand uh, motif it certainly links those two films together you know quite evocatively as well uh so i don't know, I, I imagine you guys have both seen this film before but i think it's a pretty pretty cool release and definitely will be a nice discovery for people who hadn't gotten into the box set maybe haven't yet seen this film uh despite its its you know pretty lofty reputation as one of the big art house tent poles of the mid-1960s yeah, I just caught up with it with this release, actually, and was pretty excited by it. I actually just recently seen Pitfall as well, totally by coincidence. Um, and it was kind of interesting to dig into this kind of uh, band of artists that uh, Teshigahara and uh, the novelist whose name I've already forgotten, <laughs> Kobo Abe, uh, and the uh, composer kind of formed together in this trio of films. And I think there was a fourth one they worked on together, too, that wasn't in that box set, but I can't remember the name of that one now. Um, but this, I mean, I love these kind of arch, you know, uber symbolic, but very kind of stripped down and simple setups for stories. And even at a rather extended running time at two hours and nearly 30 minutes, uh, it doesn't, didn't really wear out its welcome for me. It was like really tense throughout and has some moments where, you know, you think he could get freedom, but he can't quite. And the ending is really 
fascinating and kind of damning and interesting. And yeah, this is a really dynamic, interesting film that we should probably do an episode on one day because I think there's a lot to it. But uh, I was really thrilled by it. I'd definitely like to unpack it some more and and, and really you know do that speculation uh, interpretation game. Uh, we'll we'll spare us our listeners just to keep things moving along. But oh, yeah, for sure. there's there's a lot there's just a lot to enjoy. Just the the the, the cinematography, the extreme close ups, the, uh, the 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 textures, and just the weirdness of the story. It is definitely unlike anything you've probably seen before. And this is definitely one that high definition really helps out because you get, you know, the really fine grains of sand and the aging wood of the house they're trapped in and just all the elements kind of piling up against them really comes to life in high definition. The video essay that's on there from James Kwan is also pretty great. Um, He talks about, I think this was, I think he might've done them for each of the films in the box set, but um, he talks a little bit about like the other films, but spends a lot of time. Um, going through and you know breaking down all of the different interpretations of uh, of the elements of the movie. Yeah, there's also some really nice supplemental features of other short films that Teshigahara made, and he himself is quite a fascinating story. He is the son and heir of a, a floral design empire, which may sound a little you know what what's that all about? But in Japan, you know, uh, to be the founder of an entire school of uh, artistic floral design uh, that that's quite an honorable thing but Teshigahara kind of turned his back on that for a significant portion of his of his younger life before finally you know doing his uh, sonly duties and basically retiring from filmmaking really when he was at the height of his power so that he could you know run the family business uh, but but the short films that they include in this package are also pretty striking in in their own way. Um, the the last one, Akko from nineteen sixty five, is especially enjoyable just because it shows other aspects of his uh, artistry, his his filmmaking style from this time. The earlier ones, there's one that's called Ikebana, which is about again floral design. There's another one, uh, Tokyo nineteen fifty eight, which is a just kind of a documentary about Tokyo when it was you know, undisputably the largest city in the world. And there's one other one that I... Oh, Hokusai. That one's excellent. It's about the uh, the famous Japanese uh, uh, woodblock artist, you know, the, the famous wave crashing over Mount Fuji in the background there. Hokusai is that artist, and it's really delightful. Um, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to get to that one yet, but it's, it's, it's really like Japanese... Uh, you know, cartoon art or, or early manga, if you will, because he does some serial art. Uh, and it's just a very wonderful short summary of a, of a great artist's career from what is it like the you know, 1800s. So uh, re- really, really uh, uh, a, a very nice package. I, I really enjoy this release and definitely in, I give it a very high recommendation. All right. Well, let's move on now to the next release of the month, the first of the two Orson Welles films, Chimes at Midnight, this one uh, was kind of long rumored in that, you know, for a uh, for a number of months, we knew that there was a new um, restoration or print going around or had been, I think, had been discovered uh, of for Chimes at Midnight, a film that Orson Welles made um, years ago back in the 60s and um, was kind of had a very poor theatrical release most you know most notably due to the poor review that the new york times i think gave it at the time 
um, and which affected its its uh, theatrical distribution. And it, you know, many people had a hard time seeing it. Uh, you know, and as they mentioned in some of the supplements, like many Orson Welles fans, like just had no way of seeing this movie for years. Um, and so this one now, uh, has, has had a, a theatrical tour from Janice. It was, um, released back in the UK last year through Mr. Bongo. And I guess Mr. Bongo is one of the, like the, the distributors behind it because they're also listed as who Criterion, um, got you know worked with on this release there they have a little logo on the back of the disc itself um so scott why don't you talk a little bit about chimes at midnight gladly yes this was the film i alluded to at the beginning that even if uh mccabe and mrs miller had managed to come out this month there's no doubt in my mind that the uh long absent from american screens chimes at midnight would be the release of the month if not one of the releases of the year as you said, Ryan, this has been really difficult to see for a long time. You kind of had to rely on theatrical screenings at uh, particularly savvy rep houses in order to see it. I managed to see it, oh gosh, 2008, 2009 in Boston, and then again a few years ago at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art here, and then again for a third time when Janice kind of toured it this past year. Um, and it took until that third time for me to kind of figure out what the hell was even going on in this movie, uh, in part because the <laughs> soundtrack has famously been a mess for pretty much the entirety of his existence. As with most of his projects, Orson Welles uh, recorded the dialogue after he had shot the film, which you know makes sense in a sort of uh, practical way of then you don't have to worry about uh, ambient noise. And they mentioned, I think, the essay that there's uh, construction noise in particular going on in i think they shot in spain and somewhere they're doing a ton of construction nearby and that doesn't quite fit with the period setting of the film and so this was a way around it while also being able to then kind of more carefully control the audio elements which apparently wells was not entirely able to because yes when you see this film if indeed they ever show the print of it again uh the audio is uh difficult to discern which you know in most movies is challenging enough but when you're doing with shakespearean dialogue for an audience that is not necessarily uh well versed in it it's it makes for a difficult leap you know you can make out some of the most more famous lines you've heard before <laughs> but to, to kind of keep up the conversations and the various uh political machinations it's a, a bit of a challenge so it, it I, helps to have this the the subtitles on i'll, I'll say that for sure yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I love the poetry of Wells's tempo that he has to the dialogue in all his films, and I think it's particularly well-suited to Shakespeare. So, I mean, my advice would just be to watch it, you know, four or five times and get the hang of it that way. But if you don't have the time, I can I can understand going with the subtitles. I, I, won't, I won't blame you too much. Um, but, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, I, I, I often find that the, the Shakespeare that I enjoy are the ones that I have read as plays beforehand or that I just am way more familiar with. And so then the lines just are easier to understand or get to get the jokes with this movie. Um, it is just, I guess Wells in particular, like his, his voice just is so hard for me to understand what he's saying so often. Um, it's like he has such a beautiful voice and it's a, I, I love listening to, to him talk and say these lines. But when I'm actually trying to like make out what he's saying, like it is just it comes out almost like he's speaking another language. And I'm like, I know these words are all English words, but for some reason, it just doesn't make sense. Like what he's saying to me often in this movie and a little bit in the immortal story. But um, 
I might just be, you know, I might have here. No, I mean, in some ways, his voice is so compelling that you kind of forget to follow what he's actually (laughs) saying, um, which is made all the more difficult by the fact that this is a combination to varying extents of five different Shakespeare plays. So even if you had managed to read those plays before, you're not, you know, maybe expecting which parts he's going to pull. And in addition to the fact that the narration is pulled from an entirely different source altogether. Um, so this is a very ambitious film. Uh, Wells had staged it kind of as a play in Ireland in uh, 1960 and then kind of adapted it to the screen. And uh, this is, I, I think what Wells does really well with Shakespeare is he really makes it uh, kind of contemporary and relevant and vital. And he did that, you know, by all reports with his stage work as well. You hear those famous stories of, his productions of Macbeth and uh, various other plays in the 30s with the uh, Mercury Theatre Company that were just these completely wild and completely dynamic takes on Shakespeare that didn't rely on kind of that modern tendency to just set them in other places. You know, Shakespeare at a 60s high school or whatever was one production I saw in college. Um, but these he he made relevant just by, you know, the force of the acting and the look of the cinematography. And that's very true here. You know, this is a very kind of mid sixties film, uh, Keith Baxter, who kind of plays not exactly the main role, the main role as well as his fault staff, but, uh, Keith Baxter as Prince Hal is sort of the, uh, the crucial role, the kind of, uh, the role at which the whole, uh, work kind of, uh, hinges and his performance is kind of, you know, he could practically be stepping out of the knack and how to get it or, you know, Hard Day's Night or something. He's this very kind of swinging 60s British dude. And a lot of the more youthful performances kind of follow his lead. And then you have uh, John Gilgood as uh, King Henry, who is this very kind of arch, you know, you could kind of be stepping out of a 40s production. And Wells himself kind of merges the two with his performance, which is kind of a mixture of what he was doing in the 40s, which was very modern for its time with what he was doing in the 60s, which was very kind of wry and ironic and kind of distance in the way that a lot of the kind of 60s art films were. And I, I think on that base level, even though, like I said, those first two viewings, I really had just an impossible time following the plot of this movie. I think there's enough kind of surface level pleasures between just the pleasure of hearing Wells's voice and the way that the dialogue kind of bounces around various characters and then the way he shoots it and especially with the kind of centerpiece battle scene which has been so uh, influential ever since the film came out and it's so immediately thrilling and you don't need to kind of know the context of why anybody's fighting anybody in order to enjoy it because it's just so uh, thrilling and horrifying and it's you know it was listed as a influence on Saving Prayer Ryan in particular and you can really see that um just apart from, like I said, any of the plot machinations. But yeah, there's still just kind of the larger shape of it is it's kind of odd and offbeat and it's a weird kind of Shakespeare movie and it kind of works despite uh, the confusion. But I think it's worth pressing on to get past that because this is really kind of emerged as one of my favorite uh, Wells productions overall. And as much as I have a hard time prioritizing one or the other, this is definitely way up there for me. But I imagine this was... The first time you guys had encountered this film, so I'm kind of curious how it struck you. Oh, I was absolutely delighted. Um, I think in, a, in addition to all the things that you said about uh, maybe what makes it a bit of a challenge is Wells's editing is, is really pretty aggressive. I mean, he doesn't, I mean, the, the dialogue really just flies at you from all directions. He's not giving you the space to kind of, you know, absorb it. But I, I actually appreciate that because it it does add this, very tangible level of excitement to the characters. I mean, there's there's this intensity 
like you say, even if you don't know what's going on, the the emotions are running hot here. What, but basically, I mean, the storyline is that uh, you know Prince Hal, the son of the king, the you know, the heir apparent, and and well, there's he's got a brother who's also kind of a potential rival but then you know he he winds up becoming the king uh but he he he's enjoying the party life with falstaff you know falstaff is kind of the you know the prefer pre- the preferred father if you will of prince hal who doesn't really want to follow in his dad's you know royal footsteps he wants to live the good life and falstaff is basically <laughs> the embodiment of uh kind of the irresponsible male you know the guy who's just carousing and living it up and pinching women and drinking deep and sleeping in and just you know and he finds a way to you know get through life and and have the adventures and you know put a pretty big gut on himself along the way and so but he you know Falstaff is just this really hilarious character because he's he's always you know you know getting caught in his fibs and his exaggerations uh but he just through his sheer wit and charm you know you don't really hold it against him he's just He's just a, a guy doing what guys do, uh, but but the 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 sets, the atmosphere, these incredible Spanish castles, uh, the the lighting, the costumes. I mean, I don't know that he, you know, this must have been the biggest budget he had to work with in, in quite some time. But even then, I'm sure he was you know working quite creatively with the resources at his disposal. But this is a really rich um feast of a film in in so many ways and and incredibly rewatchable because you know even after you've watched it i think i've watched it three times since i got the disc because i know there's just more goodness (laughs) to extract from it with each with each uh revisit i and i certainly don't feel like i've exhausted it yet so um yeah i it's absolutely lived up to the hype and expectations uh, as I th- as I thought it would, I you know the the amount of you know anticipation that people had from f- from folks whose opinions I I respect and trust said yeah this is going to be something special, um, but I I would say in some ways it even surpassed it because you know the 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 set designs and just the uh, the energy of the film um, this is not some salvaged relic I mean it is. But it's it's in an, in an inherently a fantastic film uh, that you know certainly did nothing to deserve the you know a cast aside fate that it seemed to have been consigned to for you know low these many decades until you know miracle strikes and we've got a definitive version at last. Yeah, unlike a lot of Wells films, this actually somehow miraculously remained completely intact despite never really having formal distribution uh speaking to the budget thing you mentioned a little bit in the interview with Beatrice well she mentions that that battle scene uh when she was actually on set all she remembers is like three men and a dog running around and somehow Wells kind of cut that together and while you can kind of watch that and see that she's probably exaggerating I think the spirit of Wells's uh thriftiness with money is uh evident nevertheless and you also highlighted another element that I completely overlooked which is uh the kind of base humor that Wells draws from Shakespeare, especially around Falstaff's weight. There's plenty of uh, visual gags to have fun there, especially by the time that Falstaff gets into armor, which is just hilarious to just watch him on a wide <laughs> shot flailing his arms around yeah and then just kind of doing his little staggering duck walk across the <laughs> yeah, battlefield yeah. <laughs> before we get into the supplements scott you saw this one theatrically and i think you mentioned that this 
it looked even better on home video like they had still continued to do uh, restoration work on the on the film before releasing it on home video yeah at the time that this was touring uh somebody at criterion i think it was peter becker talked to wellsnet and said that their work wasn't done on the film and i was glad i knew that going in to see the dcp because i i found it to be a little wanting it was a little uh it felt kind of compressed and not a lot of details in the blacks and just not a lot of the kind of the depth and texture you'd hope for but yeah i mean i think this is really incredible looking on uh, Blu-ray. I think it's probably the best looking film I've seen from Criterion this year, uh, especially given the challenges they were up against in terms of restoring it. But there's so much depth and detail to it and texture and the lights look luminous and the the blacks look uh, just uh, pitiful as they should be and very uh, ominous, especially when you get to the castle. But yeah, this is a really exceptional job that they did in restoring it. One of those times when I wish they had kind of more information in the booklet or on the disc about the process that they would have had to gone, have gone through in terms of finding the right elements and everything, and then bringing those elements to be the best they could be. But alas, we'll just have to live with having a wonderful result. <laughs> I know like this, this one definitely seems like it could have, it deserved a restoration demonstration like they've, they've done for other releases showing, you know, the state of, um, you know, the negative or, what exactly was so hard for them to get this, you know, to look the way that it does now? Yeah, for sure. But I mean, the supplements they have are pretty good. Uh, the James Nearmore's commentary, it's maybe a little stilted in parts, but there's t- so much good information in there. And then that's uh, kind of backed up with the interviews, especially the one with Keith Baxter, which is really lovely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the interview with Joseph McBride was uh, pretty great. I think he was one of the people who said that he was able to see the film when it toured theatrically like in Chicago maybe and he just went to see it over and over again in one day um but and then also the interview with uh Simon Callow who has written you know the like definitive Orson Welles biographies I mean he's I don't even know if he's done yet but he just released the third volume this year um but he is you know he just knows everything there is to know about Orson Welles and he could just talk and talk about um about this film in particular on that supplement, but he is uh, a real, you know, a great resource for Orson Welles stu- uh, information. Uh, the the interview with the do- with Orson Welles' daughter Beatrice, uh, I thought was really charming. I I had heard I, you know, I've read, you know, the pieces on Wells Net like talking about her, and I I guess I just never had seen her, uh, or heard her talk, uh, you know, I've I've read what she's said, but never actually seen her or heard her. And it was fun to hear her, you know, reminisce about growing up with Orson Welles as a dad and what it was like to be in this movie and, um, you know, going to bullfights or, you know, eating caviar and all that. It was it was pretty great. Yeah, I like when she says that eating caviar at 3 a.m. is not a good way to start life because it's <laughs> yeah. going to be all disappointment from there. Yeah. yeah, like caviar in Hong Kong or wherever it was that she yeah. said, like, oh, we had to fly there because they had this great, you know, caviar that my father wanted to have. And also the uh, piece with uh, Orson Welles on the Merv Griffin show is awesome because Welles, especially as he got older and more bitter, was uh, always a delightful interview subject. Well, the uh, do you guys have any other things you want to talk about for, for Chimes at Midnight before we jump to the last one? Well, I think it's just, you know, Orson Welles just seems to be having a rip-roaring delight of a time. I mean, at least his characterization of Falstaff is just bubbling over with <laughs> just the zeal and zest of life and uh, of course that's what Falstaff as a character is about but you sort of you know you sort of see Wells um, 
knowing that he's got something good going here. And and that Merv Griffin clip where he's literally at his editing table putting the battle sequence together and you're kind of staring over his shoulder as he's, you know, assembling his, uh, really his late career masterpiece. It's just, what a remarkable moment. uh, What a privilege just to sort of sit in and, and and you know, hear him sort of take us a, a moment aside from his labors and kind of usher us into what he's got going on there. Uh, just it was just a fascinating glimpse of the artist at work. And it's so sad when the guy asks him about Kane, and he's like, "Fine, we can talk about Kane." <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. You're, you're gonna go there, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, one in one of the interviews and in one of the supplements, they, there's like a throwaway line about how they cut every other frame out of that battle sequence and had to like retape it back together. I mean, you know, like obviously like how they would edit a film, but like just the idea of like cutting out all those frames and put, stitching it back together again, uh, seems like such a headache when you could do that digitally now, but, uh, you know, pr- pretty amazing that just to like give it that added, uh, bit of, of, of speed, you know, cutting every other frame out. It was also, it was, it was sad and interesting to, to hear about, um, you know, Falstaff as a character and how Orson Welles, you know, obviously kind of related to him and, and you know, enjoyed him as a character in, in kind of in his own way of living, but then also hearing the stories about his own father and his own father's kind of way that he lived life and, and drank too much and um, and then eventually, you know, drank himself to death and how Orson Welles blamed him himself for that and, um, you know, a really interesting story that came out of out of the supplements and and i actually drew some connections between orson wells and ingrid bergman both of whom went through some pretty you know pretty sad chapters in their childhood although they both obviously had some great opportunities and became (laughs) globe-trotting superstars in their own way so yeah just two two big personalities that come through in this month's releases so uh, in addition to Chimes at Midnight, we got an individual release of The Immortal Story, uh, an Orson Welles film, um, which is really like a, a, a shot for, for TV, essentially, um, from 1968. This is about an hour-long film where Orson Welles um, is this uh, wealthy merchant living in Macau who uh, becomes obsessed with a story that he has heard and has and his uh, assistant tells to him it one night while they're reading the books, like reading through the, uh, all of the, the details of his, you know, uh, financial goings on. And, um, and then they, you know, they run out of stuff to talk about. And so he's like, you know, tell me a story. And then he tells the story of this, of a sailor who is, uh, met by a, by a merchant who wants him to, you know, he, he needs a, uh, an heir. And, uh, so he needs to, you know, get him and his, his his wife connected and so orson you know the the um orson Welles's character in the movie wants to set up this story so that an act uh, so that a a real sailor could really tell this story one day and it's a it's a it's an interesting uh little film uh, based on a story from isaac dennison who uh karen blixen who orson wells uh, you know orson wells was obsessed with shakespeare but he was also very apparently obsessed with isaac dennison and uh I this so this one was available on Hulu for, uh, or I guess it still is available on Hulu, uh, in a much poorer uh, state than what is uh, on this Blu-ray. But David, you actually just wrote up a your Criterion Reflections uh, article for this since you just yeah. landed here. So uh, 
uh, I guess feel free to go ahead and talk about this. Well, yeah, yeah. So this is basically half of a project that never kind of came to full fruition. But, you know, it's it's like I say, just an hour long, uh, originally produced for TV, although even, at, even in its production, it had a theatrical run as part of the original plan. And so uh, when it came to the States and maybe elsewhere, they teamed it up with Bunuel's uh, Simon of the Desert, which was also another <laughs> film that kind of ran out of money, so it only wound up being 45 minutes long. So an interesting, you know, you know double feature of, uh, you know, old men in the kind of golden years of their uh, cinematic careers. Uh, but, yeah, this is a film that I think pales in comparison. Let's just, let's just put it right out there. Pales in comparison to Chimes at Midnight. I mean, everything I said about the energy and the vitality of, of, of both the uh, character that Wells plays and just the pacing of the movie is almost completely inverted in this film. This is a very um, brooding, slow-paced, very deliberate, um, you know, low-key type of movie where the character's are often just sort of standing still, delivering their lines in kind of a, a languid pace. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, even when this one was announced, I think a lot of it was either based on the less than impressive uh, presentation of the Hulu stream version, uh, which really does look like kind of a worn out VHS that you borrowed from the library <laughs> or something like that. Um, it, it didn't it didn't generate maybe the same enthusiasm that chimes at midnight and then there's there are two different you know films altogether although really um the immortal story was actually filmed in 1966 so it came out and was in production very soon after chimes had had wrapped up and was you know doing its kind of aborted theatrical run uh so yeah so what what explains this difference in tone and i think i think wells uh, just wanted to tell a different type of story. And what I found as I watched the Blu-ray, and again, the supplemental materials really do put this whole thing in a much better context, um, yeah, I found it much more enjoyable. But you know, the interesting thing is I did write my review and, and watch The Immortal Story um, before I got Chimes at Midnight. I actually didn't pick up Chimes on opening day, so to speak. I, I got it the following weekend and... and uh, you know, put the immortal story ahead of it just because I wanted to get it out, you know, fairly soon after the film had been released uh, for home consumption. So, you know, we, we have a we have a story that kind of unfolds at its own pace. Uh, Jean Moreau is back in this one as she was also in Chimes at Midnight, playing a much more significant role. Uh, this is Wells' first film in color. Uh, again, it was produced in color almost against his original wishes but that was part of the deal because French TV was in the process of of incorporating color and there's actually some very nice things that are done with the lighting um, but there's also a certain heavy-handedness to some of the you know artsy compositions I mean they're they're kind of cool and interesting and and you know I always like that ambition of somebody who's going to try something a little bit off the beaten track, but not every shot works with the same effect. And, and as we're, we've been talking about, like Teshigahara and Woman in the Dunes, that came out right around the same time. I mean, it's hard to think that maybe Wells wasn't trying his hand at keeping up with some of the younger folks, you know. And of course, he was a, an incredible cinematic innovator, you know, throughout his career. But I think at this point, um, you know, maybe there just wasn't quite the same knack there to to uh, 
achieve maybe what he was striving for and some of the kind of uh i don't know what you want to call them the the the, the erotic scenes at the end and and there there may be some limitations with the with the young actor who was really doing his was it Roger uh, whatever his name was uh, uh, he, uh the the young man the sailor guy yeah. there's a certain awkwardness to his performance and I, I, it's just yeah it's an interesting idea it, it's a concept that kind of maybe achieves about three quarters of what it might have been um, but overall you know just again my my um, appreciation of what wells was going through and and maybe uh how this fits into the larger narrative of of wells the the artist kind of frustrated by the limitations of the systems in which he had to work uh there's there's sort of a, a meta context behind some of this as well uh, so you know I, I give it a recommendation but you know like i say chimes is if you're on a budget or you just really want to get the most bang for your buck chimes is going to deliver a lot more but i think if you're a if you're a serious fan of orson wells and you really want to you know uh, get a good grasp of what he was doing uh this is very rightfully uh, belongs on your shelf yeah it was interesting seeing um or hearing some of the the commentary track and watching the the documentary um it was fun reading more just about i think the Orson Welles's interest in the author behind this and how how obsessed he was and how he would you know he he traveled to meet her but then kind of chickened out at the last minute um, because he didn't want like or he I guess maybe he felt that like you know when, when you he didn't want that magic to kind of taken away I think from from actually meeting her in real life but um yeah I I mean this it's kind of a tough watch to go through especially i mean compared to chimes at midnight this is much even though it's much shorter it's it feels like you know the hour takes a lot longer it's much more slower and yeah like you said it's not quite as enjoyable but it is you know it does give you a a better more well-rounded view of what types of movies orson wells was able to make you know and you get an idea also of like the other uh uncompleted works um, that he wanted to do but never finished or never got around to doing. Yeah, that's the thing. Even though I've uh, slagged on this movie many times on the podcast, and you know, I kind of curious to revisit it in a better transfer than the pretty poor Hulu one. Uh, yeah, I think you'll you definitely know. find that the HD makes yeah, it much sure. more, much more uh, intriguing and easier to stay with. Because, like you say, just just watch the watch the lighting effects, watch the use of color. Um, and even the compositions, you know, there, there's some good stuff going on there. He's got a cinematographer, um, was it Willie Courant? Is that his name? I think who, who did some pretty good work there. So, uh, it's, it's, it's not a pure slog at all. Yeah. I was just going to further say that Wells is just so, such an interesting figure and in not only just film, but just culture in general that I feel like any opportunity to kind of get to know him better is one I'll at least try to take, um, so I feel like I got to pick this up sooner or later. But yeah, it is. It is fascinating to see two different performances from Orson Welles. They're just so different from you know from one another. Like his his performance as this this old uh, merchant is just like you know it seems almost like a different person doing it, even though it you know you you hear his voice and you see you see that face. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you feel like man, he's really this old and this bedraggled and this you know low energy, and yet you know he still had another 
you know, 20 years of life ahead of him. And, and um, as, as I've been sort of reading up a little bit more on late Wells and, and, you know, the guy was just continually doing creative stuff. It's just, he had a hard time getting it into finished form. I mean, obviously F for fake, you know, is, is kind of the last great film following, following these two that we've been talking about tonight. And, uh, but otherwise he's doing, you know, bit parts in, in, uh, you know, commercial films and, and doing TV ads for Paul Masson <laughs> wine and, and all the other things that he does. Um, but beyond all of that, you know, he's, he's got these ideas and he's just uh, right up to the day he died, he's doing things, uh, to get that artistic expression out there. It's just, you're going to have to do some work to put the pieces back together to find out what he what he had in mind. I guess the other side of the wind. You got any updates as to where that whole project is at now? I was just looking. I was just uh, searching for that because I feel like we have heard updates. There was the Kickstarter campaign where people were donating to help uh, fund the the editing of the project. But um, I think over the past several months, it seems like it has kind of stalled and is it seems like reports that we're hearing is that it's not going to happen or at least like i don't know if uh oya kodar is is kind of involved with the like um the stopping of it um or the you know like halting progress on it but um i don't know scott do you do you remember any of the more recent like updates for the for the news on this uh, the last I read about it was more of the same that uh, Peter Bogdanovich was cursing out uh, Ms. Wells um, and uh, that she's still not making any public statements about it. So who knows what her side of it is. But yeah, I am. I'm glad I did not donate to the Kickstarter campaign and I feel for those who did. Yeah. I mean, it's really sad. Like there was I think there was even like a rumor going around that maybe Netflix was looking into helping finish this and, and distribute it. But then. I think that might have just been a rumor. Um, but yeah, like there's, there are a number of articles being written um, over the past year about the the project stalling, but. Yeah. Um, and, and after all of that, what would you really get? I mean, are the pieces all there just waiting to be put together or would this truly be an Orson Welles film? I, I don't I mean, I, I haven't studied it closely enough to have a, an opinion on that, but, but one just kind of does wonder are you really going to get what you've been anticipating, you know, after all these years? It's like when Axel Rose finally put Chinese democracy out. It's like, <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> we got I it. I think it's Good. close enough to, to be completed as like uh, Touch of Evil was or uh, Mr. Arcaden. Like the, the notes are there. The footage is there. There's kind of an order they can see it in, but. It'll, of course, never truly be an Orson Welles film, which is too bad. Was Joseph McBride one of the the, the historians? Didn't in in I think in the interviews with Chimes and Chimes at Midnight, he talks about being in the movie or being like like meeting with Orson Welles while he was shooting uh, Other Side of the Wind and like getting a little bit part in it. I I actually haven't watched that interview yet, so I couldn't say for sure. But I I know Welles was kind of throwing everybody he knew into that movie. It yeah. seemed like uh, so I wouldn't be surprised. Well, for, I guess for anyone who's interested, um, and if you're not already subscribed to Wellsnet, the Orson Welles blog, uh, they do a really great job of of gathering any information about any Orson Welles upcoming news or projects and whatnot. Uh, you know, it's always a, a great resource to to keep track of this stuff. Um, and I guess we'll have to wait and see what what other titles Criterion does of Wells. I mean, there was. 
um what is is was Othello one of the other Orson Welles films that Criterion might have been rumored to be working on yeah I feel like there's been talk about that for a while and I really hope so because I love that film yeah and Olive Signature just announced uh, Macbeth um the two versions of Macbeth will be coming out later this year so I'm I'm kind of interested in this Olive Signature line actually I've never i think maybe have one or two olive discs but they've got a pretty nice little lineup going there and then i think you know we've we've talked about like the idea of criterion getting citizen kane back or at least you know re-releasing it that was you know their first laser disc and so it'd be nice if they were able to you know although there have been so many different edition like home video editions and do we really need another one uh it might be nice it would be nice to see what criterion would do if they got the rights to you know do a you know an updated you know with updated supplements maybe or just like their own new like blu-ray edition of it and nobody in the states has put out the trial but i fear that studio canal has a hold on that oh yeah uh, i guess if you for it you know speaking of wells a little bit more if you haven't watched those around the world with orson wells uh little tv documentaries that he did um i think the bfi released that in uh the uk and I think they were available to watch on Fandor and I forget now if anyone released them here on home video in the States, but, um, those are, those are fun also. I mean, if you are interested in hearing about, you know, his travels and hearing him talk, uh, some more, those are fun to watch. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to join me tonight to talk about these August titles. It was a lot of fun going through and watching these over the past few weeks. Yeah, I, I totally enjoyed this month's lineup. I mean, there's not a dud in the bunch. And uh, yeah, the films that I, I look forward to watching again in the not till distant future. It was nice having five releases to watch this month and kind of looking ahead at the upcoming months, thinking about doing more of these episodes and, right. you know, like, Next month is going to be kind of tough just because there's so many films coming out. Um, is Decalogue next month or De- later De- this month? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Decalogue comes out in a couple of weeks. Wow. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if ever, I don't expect anyone to watch all of the Zedewichi films just to talk about the Blu-ray re-release of that box. I think set, Aaron but, and Mark just yeah. kind of covered that one. <laughs> totally. So they'll they'll be our Zedewichi references uh, for that one. But there are a lot of titles to watch this month, and then you know, next month, even more, and then November, even more. And so, um, there's a lot of stuff to watch over the next few months. Not that I'm complaining about watching amazing movies. Um, but yeah. All right, Scott, David, thanks so much for joining me. Listeners. Thanks for, uh, all of the feedback you send us regarding this series of shows that we've been doing. And we will be back, uh, around this time next month to talk about the September lineup. <laughs>